Hi, and welcome to the Copy Blogger Podcast. My name is Tim Stoddart. Thank you so much for joining me. This week's episode is something different. Copy Blogger has always been dedicated to helping you build a better business by creating better content. The internet provides us all with an even playing field in which to write articles, create content, serve our audience, and build a great business. But what happens when the fabric of the internet itself is changing? How do you adjust to such drastic changes and stay ahead of the curve? To get to the bottom of some of these questions, I invited Dror Poleg onto the podcast. Dror writes a weekly newsletter at drawerpoleg.com. He writes about what the future of work will look like as blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and NFTs are becoming an integral part of how we interact with each other and make transactions. In addition, Dror has some very interesting ideas on how products will be created and sold. For instance, now that everything can be tokenized, what is to stop entrepreneurs from selling services and products that are broken down to a finite level? What if you could write a sentence of copy and be paid through an NFT? What if gestures or even good behavior can be rewarded through digital tokens on the blockchain? It's a fascinating topic, and I'm so thrilled Dror took the time to speak with us. He's a brilliant mind, and I look forward to reading his newsletter each week. As content marketers, it's important that we keep up with the times. And with that, please help me welcome Dror Poleg. Dror, thank you so much for coming on my show. I'm excited to speak to you ever since you decided to come on. I've been telling my wife about it. I'm like really fascinated by your viewpoint on the world and, and some of these topics that we're going to talk about. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited as well. I, I think I told you earlier, I try to be selective about these things just because I, I like to talk about stuff that interests me. And often people just want to talk to me about stuff that I've kind of said too much about already and yeah. like boring, but uh, hopefully this will be somewhat different. For sure. And um, I can imagine you've been brought onto different shows, sort of getting the same hijacked questions over and over again, right? So we'll, we'll make sure we have fun with this. But however, with that being said, um, I have to stick to the script. I open up every conversation with the same question. The background photo on your Twitter bio, it looks like a book. It says, winner take, takes most. Can you just tell me about your background photo and what that means to you? Yeah, so I'm currently writing a book. It's my second book. And it's really about prosperity and anxiety in a world of what I call scalable careers. So basically the opportunities that the internet and technology at large affords us, uh, taking away the ceiling in many ways and making a whole global playing field that everyone can participate in. And at the same time, uh, the fact that it is taking away the floor as well and that a lot of the stability and the kind of things that we took for granted in the 20th century are no longer there. So the idea of you know just having a going to study something, assuming that that something is going to be useful and indefinitely and that you're going to get a job, do the same thing for 40 years, earn enough to buy a house, send your kids through college, uh, and then retire with some sort of dignity and you know, uh, be a happy man or woman and, and say goodbye. Uh, I think today we are all forced to live the lives of, in a way, movie stars or, or athletes in the sense that you know, the sky's the limit for us but at the same time, if we don't reach for the sky, we kind of fall down. And uh, the odds of each of us succeeding uh, or all of us succeeding in a way that follows some sort of a normal distribution are are very low today. So it's it's much more about, okay, whether you can kind of generate hits or, you know, fall behind. 
And even for those that end up winning, uh, just like in the world of entertainment or sports, it's not it's not about making it. It's about like also staying there. And like, you know, so even when you win, you're constantly kind of conscious of how uh, precarious your existence is. Uh, not to mention all sorts of other issues that come with it that you're like, oh, I'm so amazing. I must be a genius. And then you, your mind gets <laughs> messed up. And uh, the just psychological pressure of it beyond the financial kind of ups and downs is also an issue that uh, normies didn't have to use to worry about. And now they sure. do. Yeah, uh, I'm so fascinated by this concept because I think about it a lot as well. I've kind of considered myself like a Seth Godin type protege. I was always really fascinated by his ideas of long tail, where it's almost like the Pareto principle, right? No matter what you're looking at in the universe, 20% of the stuff gobbles up 80% of the resources. You know, it's, it's a relatively universal law. It's like this juxtap it's like a duality, right? Because on one side, there's opportunity for everybody. But the cost of that opportunity is that since it's a free-for-all, the advantage goes to the people that like already have the advantage, right? And so that advantage just keeps stacking up and stacking up and stacking up on itself. And I don't really see an end in sight with the internet world that we live in. I love how in your writing you refer to it as a game, you know, like this is what the economy is. It's a game. Like we're all just trying to get the next Mario coins, you know, and get that next, uh, that, that next bit of attention. So I suppose my question is like, do you see this new world economy ending anytime soon? And if not, what do, what's it going to turn into? So a couple of points already to, to try to make it a little more optimistic based on what you just said. Yeah. I think that I'm obviously I'm obsessed with the long tail idea as well. It comes from, you know, Chris Anderson's book, but also yep. from a lot of other theories before that. Uh, but there's two interesting things that, that I kind of disagree with you on. Uh, one is that I don't necessarily think that the winners will just keep winning. Uh, maybe that applies to platforms as a whole, but not necessarily to individuals. And even for the platforms, I think if we look 20, 30 years ahead, it's not clear that they will continue to dominate in the way that they're dominating today. Uh, but more importantly, as I said earlier, I think that even the winners in today's world, unless like really it's a handful of people that really reach some sort of escape velocity and, you know, are so rich that they don't have to worry about anything, uh, even them, uh, they have no idea where they'll be in 10 or 20 years, very differently from, you know, some industrial kind of uh, billionaire, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, like even an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, you know, they're, the regulation that they face, the fierce competitors that they each other are to each other. Uh, and uh, and also here, I think when you get to those levels, the psychological issues come into play. So, you know, these, <laughs> these people might self-destruct just because, you know, they're at the center of so many things. And we're seeing that in their behavior that is quite, you know, interesting. Each of them, you know, Bezos suddenly, his, his family life is falling apart. Bill Gates as well. Like they're starting to do all sorts of things that seem unscripted in a way and not to mention Elon Musk which is like a chaos kind of an ongoing chaos <laughs> machine chaos engine, yeah. uh, which is wonderful and fascinating and, and very impactful but also you're kind of like okay this guy I have no idea when you think of like oh, that life of like okay I'm just going to retire when I'm 90 and have a dignified retirement you know I'm not sure if, that, if that's where he's headed uh, let's say uh, the second point is one interesting aspect of the internet, which I think gives us hope as well, is that you have to win 
but there is no longer just a single game or a single arena or a single sport. The beauty of the internet is that you can make a living just by, you know, you know like having a hundred true fans or a thousand true fans, like by, by being the best, but being the best doesn't mean, you know, beating LeBron James at basketball. It means like making a really funny TikTok about basketball and having 10,000 people who love the way you explain it or the way you play it. So it doesn't mean that you're the best in the world in absolute term, but in some sort of subjective measure in terms of like, okay, do people like your specific voice, your specific way of explaining this specific thing? Are there enough of these people that are going to pay you so that you'll be able to make a living or not necessarily pay you, but to allow you to monetize whatever it is that you're doing in a certain way, uh, which is another thing that the internet is opening up, this kind of multiple new business models and ways for people to make a living. Uh, and I think that one of the defenses against this kind of uncertainty and, and volatility is to have multiple income streams, multiple SKUs in a way, you know, stuff that you're selling and doing. Um, and uh, and yeah, which is both fun, but it's also tough. And, and it's not something that they teach us how to do in school. Um, so, but sorry, but maybe to go back to the big, big question that you asked, uh, I, I, I tend to be optimistic. A lot of my writing is a little dark sometimes because I want to point out to people the, the kind of structural issues that we're facing. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like, you know, kind of like people that are just like, oh, oh yeah, the internet, everyone will be free and it will be a democracy and everyone will have free speech and we'll all be smart and always make the best decisions about everything. And uh, And the assumption is that if you just let people be free, then it means that we'll have a middle class and everyone will be kind of happy. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, historically we know that the world tends to be like a cruel place and most of history, there were just a few rich people or strong people that control most other people. And most other people were not educated and didn't have access or rights uh, of various kinds. And that's just how it, it was. I'm not saying we should go back to that, but we should always remember that that's in a way the default option. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not saying that we should just let government manage everything. I'm just saying that we should know that, you know, giving us freedom and empowering individuals doesn't always end up in everyone having the best time. Uh, and uh, in terms of what we do about it, I think that we will have to develop all sorts of new institutions. Some of that will have to be kind of government-related stuff. So, you know, people are talking about universal ba basic income. I'm not really convinced that that's... A solution in itself, but but some sort of safety net, or at least some things that uh, that allow people basic dignity. You know, I would start probably with with decent healthcare, regardless of whether it's private or public or how you do it. I think in America, both options are kind of pretty bad at the moment. So so again, <laughs> the discussion there as well. It's not you know, do I want like uh, Aetna or like whatever insurance company to be in charge or do I want the IRS to be in charge? Probably neither, but you know, but there's a lot of examples in the world of both private and public ways that work. Uh, and what interests me more is the institutions that are kind of more, more social, more private, more communal. Uh, and, and on that front as well, we have many more examples in history. So prior to the kind of industrial era, uh, you know, whether it is the family or religion or guilds or all sorts of ways of organizing people together, of pulling risks in various ways, of aligning the interests of specific people. Uh, I mean, there's many more ways that, that people can kind of take care for each other. And here, too, that does not mean that, you know, we're all going to be hippies. 
in those eras, you know, there was still, there was this group against that group and there was that guild protecting the interests of those people against another guild that presents the interests of other people or, you know, or trying to screw the consumers themselves. Uh, so I'm not assuming that there's an optimal outcome to, to any of these suggestions, but I'm mostly just interested in trying, you know, in, in looking at things that already seem to emerge uh, and kind of thinking of things that haven't emerged yet, but that maybe we've seen in previous eras that were uh, characterized by some things that, that will probably characterize the, the next 50 or 100 years. You basically just talked about all of my favorite things to think about. Like, <laughs> and this is why I was so I'm, excited. I'm well prepared. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I, I wrote down all the points that I want to touch on there because there's a lot of confusion, at least for me, you know, I don't want to speak for like society at a whole, but there's a lot of confusion because I, I see these really positive, optimistic, new technological advances. And, you know, it's like, Hey, maybe we can figure out climate change and the, you know, uh, what, what's some of the statistics mass start, not starvation, um, poverty, absolute poverty is like really, really declining. And like women are being educated and all of these metrics that ultimately seem like they would bring a better, more prosperous society to all. And so I see like this positive side. And then on the other side, I feel this constant anxiety and like tension that you talk about that this internet age forces us to live in, right? And I can tell myself, this is just my lizard brain. This is my survival mechanism telling me danger, danger, danger. And in today's world, where this game of fame and attention almost forces you to constantly be exposed, right? Because my, my lizard brain wants me to be part of the tribe. Like I want to be protected. I don't want to be out there garnering attention for myself. Like that's how you get kicked out. And then I'll be alone in the jungle, right? And so there's this this side of me that thinks always be an individualist. Um, institutions are terrible, you know, look out for myself. And then there's this other side of me that thinks like, no, society needs community and needs institutions. And we need things that can work in harmony, basically. And like, I can't figure out personally how I feel about either of those things. And when I, when I say that, like, wh what does that bring into your mind? How does that make you feel? So the first thing it makes me think is about Judaism. Because that's kind of the world where I come from. And, and in Judaism, there is this constant tension between the individual and the community and, and you know, and God, but also like government, so, you know, mm -hmm. when... In, in, in the Bible, when the Jews decide that they want a king for the first time. So God sends a prophet to give them a certain parable uh, about the trees that wanted to find a king for themselves. And then that king ended up burning all of them down because it was too powerful. So, which is not something you would expect to find in a religious text because most religious texts, I mean, they kind of, religion is used to reinforce the status quo. It's like a, a way of, of dominating people, at least of calming them down. Yeah. Uh, in most cases. And here you kind of ask yourself, okay, so how come there's this idea on the one hand, you're saying, okay, there's something so hierarchical, like a religion, and there's all these rules are so rigid. And at the same time, you're kind of telling me, yeah, you should 
you should have a king only if you really want one. And if you really want one, you should know that it would not end up well. Uh, but at the same time, also in Judaism, wherever you are in the world, the prayer book always has a prayer for the government or for the ruler, or even for the queen of England, if you're in, for the queen herself, if you're in England. And it kind of says, wherever you are, the, the law of the land should be your law. Because without that law, people would eat each other alive. That's what it basically says. So uh, ideally, this kind of individualistic instinct and the need for survival, there should be a clear path that shows us how us getting along with each other is actually the best possible way for us to look after ourselves yeah. personally. And that, uh, you know, I wrote about that a couple of weeks ago that when people started moving to the cities, you know, in the 18th, 19th century, so some sociologists looked at it and said, you know, oh, life in the city is so different from, from life in the rural world, because in the rural world, everything was personal. People kind of did favors to each other. They relied on their family. They relied on these kind of uh, natural, spontaneous institutions. That's how they were described. While in the city, everything is much more commercial. You know, people, they pay for someone to come and babysit their kids or to make their lunch and uh, or, you know, to ensure their business. And superficially, it looks like a completely different world. It is much colder and kind of uh, not as natural as spontaneous. But actually, when you look at the pre-industrial world, you understand that even those kind of soft, spontaneous, natural institutions, they were still driven by self-interest and, you know, the need. People were nice to each other because they had to be nice to each other in order to stay alive and in order to, you know, yeah, I helped my neighbor because I knew that he would help me when I need him. Yeah. It wasn't just out of some kind of, you know, uh, nothing wrong with that. But right? it wasn't just like I was just being nice for no reason. You know, people were nice to each other because they needed something from each other. And even then, there were the in-groups and out-groups. And, you know, they were nice to their people. And they were not so nice to probably most other people in the world. Uh, so... I'm in that sense, I'm optimistic that humans will figure out all sorts of new ways to uh, to both take care of each other and to find new things to fight about with other people that are part <laughs> of other groups, uh, because that's how it has always been. Yeah, I, I share your optimism in that it's all going to work out. Um, I, I think that this is all just so new to us. Who, whoever would a person is not used to thinking, okay, let me point this phone at myself and make something completely unauthentic to just what regular life is. You know, like we're all just making things yeah. up and we're saying like, this is my life. Look at me. Um, and, and the anxiety that comes with that. And I, I especially appreciate how you say the half-life of this internet attention that we create is so short. I was having a conversation with my friend the other day. He's a CMO of like a pretty large company that um, I, I invested in. And he was driving home. He's like, man, I just want to tell you sometimes like I appreciate so much how you're always able to take risk and be entrepreneurial and not depend on anybody. Uh, and I'm always worried that my job is going to get taken away from me. And yeah, that is terrifying. But then there's the other side, which is this anxiety side that me and, and you live in where at any moment, for whatever reason, a platform shift, an algorithm update, maybe somebody just decides they don't like me anymore, this attention just disappears. And so you're always fighting for that next, uh, next click, next like, next uh, share, 
whatever. And, and the half-life of it is so quick that it's like a constant race to just completely feed the beast, you know? And as soon as you stop doing it, it's like walking up and down escalator, I think. You know, as soon as you take a break, you don't stay still, you go backwards. And the the anxiety that I think our culture is ridden with because of that complex uh, can be really, really daunting. And I think it's it's having serious consequences. Yeah, the, the, two, two things I'd say about that. One, maybe a, a bigger even source of anxiety or what what kind of like takes it to a different level is that it's it's not even a clear escalator. You don't even know where he's up or what you're supposed to do. You know, it, I wake up in the morning. I don't know every morning, okay, this is what I have to do today. And if I do that, then everything will be okay. I'm like, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I spend more? Maybe I should do nothing and just kind of think. Uh, it's very, That's part of the issue, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs have as well in kind of more practical businesses than mine, that you kind of wake up in the morning, like, okay, what should I spend time on? Nobody tells me what to do. There's no clear roadmap. Uh, on an hourly, daily basis, but also in terms of five years, 10 years, 20 years, I'm like, okay, like I just have to make all of this up because there's just no no roadmap. Uh, and what's more interesting in this for me is that I'm I'm kind of half boring, you know? I'm, you can say I'm like a creator now, so I kind of live that lifestyle. But I still come from a world, you know, from <laughs> I used to have a corporate job. I worked in real estate and kind of in finance and, and in tech and advertising. Um, and... With my current lifestyle, a lot of the risk is kind of self-inflicted. It's it's choices that I've made. It's trade-offs that I did conscious, you know, consciously that I'm like, okay, I just want to do a certain thing and I'm willing to let go of certain things in order to have that lifestyle that I want and to take the necessary risks. But what's really interesting is how more and more of that dynamic starts to affect the kind of the boring profession. So not just someone who lives off of Instagram or Twitter, but even, even the lawyer, even the truck driver, even the fitness instructor is suddenly competing with people all over the world. And he's suddenly dependent on these algorithms and he's suddenly required to have his own, some sort of channel or some sort of yeah. differentiation. Uh, and, and that's where it gets really interesting for me. I think there's enough people that are kind of writing about celebrities and athletes and, you know, the cool stuff. I, I'm interested in the boring stuff in the people that, that don't see it coming. They just think, okay, all of this is really cool, but it has nothing to do with me. I'm just going to go about living my normal life and everything will be fine. So I'm interested in them, like telling them, no, it's not, it's not going to be fine. <laughs> like, you know, maybe it's fine now. Maybe it will be fine for two more years, maybe five, maybe 15. Uh, but ultimately every profession, every stable thing will be reshuffled much more than we understand. And this whole internet thing, I think I'm still amazed every day by what the internet does. And I think most people still don't get it at all, even though it's been around for so long. Like, you know, you you discovered me on the the Prof G podcast, for example. Uh, you know, here I wake up every week. I send an article. I throw it on the internet. I'm not famous by any means, and so, and every now and then it gets to a person like that who reads it and just says, "Oh, this is really cool. I'll just invite this guy." And now half a million people are going to hear about him this week. Uh, and it happens all the time. And I see it happening to friends and other people around me in different ways, in different professions, in different fields of interest. And, and it just never ceases to amaze me that we have this thing that you can just throw something out into the world just because you have an opinion. And the most relevant person to that opinion is somehow going to hear about it. It's somehow, it's somehow going to reach that person, you know. He didn't see me like on TV or something. It's not like a million people read that article that he read. Maybe 10,000 people read it, maybe 50, maybe five. I don't even remember which one it was. 
So it's not like, okay, everybody heard it. So he heard it as well. But it's just like the power of the internet to, to make these matches of like, okay, the, you are going to hear the most specific thing that will interest you this morning. And that will create this kind of new explosion. Uh, it just never ceases to amaze me. And I think most people just don't understand, uh, again, both the opportunities that it offers them, but also the risk of like, you know, that there's people out there that are kind of coming to eat their lunch from all sorts of directions that are very easy to dismiss, uh, but are nonetheless very, very real. Yeah. Let, let me hear your opinion a little bit on these risks. You You mentioned a few times the things that interest me. And yes, I'm interested in that too. The truck driver, for instance, the truck driver, this is a generalization, but the truck driver has no clue today that somehow the, that he sh- needs to, he or she should be building a quote distribution channel. You know, somehow this attention economy, this internet economy is going to affect the truck driver, uh, probably going to affect all service jobs, probably going to affect emergency responders. My dad's a paramedic. I've been trying to get him to create uh, a paramedic podcast for the last five years is because of the crazy shit that he's seen because uh, he, he works in North Philly. So in those boring industries, right? The things that nobody thinks about until all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this is here. How do you foresee this wave affecting them? It's hard to tell. Like one, you know, I just saw a piece of news the other day about Mitsubishi partnering with a startup to make forklifts that can be driven remotely. So they're not fully autonomous, but basically in terms of, instead of someone being in the factory uh, or in the warehouse driving a forklift, there's someone at an office somewhere in the world driving that forklift like a computer game. Uh, So even if the job is still performed by humans, uh, it's performed somewhere else and performed somewhere else often means performed by someone else for a different costs. Uh, and these are super physical things. You know, it's like you're driving a forklift, like you're lifting boxes. And most of the people that thought about kind of the impact of the, the future of the internet said, okay, is it going to be automated? And then they kind of estimated how hard or how easy it is to automate. And they said, okay, maybe we have another 10, 15, 20 years. But then the kind of remote element comes along and says, yeah, Humans still need to do this for the next 10, 15 years, but it's not going to be you. Maybe it's going to be someone else, or maybe we're going to move you now and you're going to sit in like this kind of <laughs> like an internet cafe kind of farm and, you know, just kind of play with, with the joystick all day, uh, which might be better or might be worse. Uh, in terms of what to do about it, I have to say, I don't have any magic solutions. Uh, obviously, some people can, you know, create their own channels, but I don't think that every person on earth needs to be an influencer and that that will solve all of our problems. But I do think that more broadly, probably more of us will be busy serving each other in all sorts of ways uh, and monetizing uh, all sorts of gestures <laughs> in ways that, that haven't been monetized before. I wrote a little bit about that as well, that... We're starting to see on the internet, and it always begins with with adult entertainment, these kind of new trends. Uh, so, you know, when the internet started, there was porn and, and you know, prostitution and people finding kind of dates online. Uh, but now we're starting to see things like OnlyFans. And, and okay, a lot of that is like good old fashioned, you know, just people looking at naked other people or people doing stuff. But more and more of that is something different. It's just like 
oh, can you say my name on screen? Or can you just do something personalized for me? Or can you smile at me? Or can you write something for my birthday or for my friend's birthday? A lot of it is just like simple human gestures that are now becoming dominated by these market mechanisms as well, which is on one hand is terrifying and terrible because you're like, okay, like is nothing sacred? Like is nothing going to be natural anymore? Going back to the discussion about the city versus the, the countryside because the internet is basically a, the next city, right? It's an extension mm-hmm. of like having this dense network of, of people. Uh, but on the other hand, you're like, okay, but maybe that's how people are going to make a living. You know, they're just going to smile at each other and write birthday cards for each other and give each other hugs. And maybe that's where we're headed, you know, like monetizing all sorts of new things that only we can do as humans and leave it to the machines to drive that forklift. Uh, because maybe driving a forklift wasn't the best use of <laughs> 40 years of someone's time to begin with. And I don't know, maybe just smiling at each other or being nice for a fee. Uh, maybe that's not the optimal outcome either, but maybe it's not <laughs> it's not so bad. And uh, and who knows what other things will come up that, that people can get paid for and kind of make a living out of. I agree with what you're saying. It's almost the word that's coming to my mind. Well, obviously tokenization and... Um, I'm sure that you've been asked to do like a million crypto podcasts recently. So uh, we can dive into that because I think your viewpoint is really, uh, it's it's on point, I think, in terms of some of the unintended societal consequences that will happen. And with tokenization, it's like everything becomes commoditized because there's no limit to what you can break down into a product. I don't like, it's, it's, it's hard to, I finally conceptualized it. And then once I conceptualized it, I was like, how do I even say this? And a gesture is a perfect example. Why wouldn't it be where a gesture can be owned or traded or like a gesture from a, a, a famous person all of a sudden has value to it because when everything else is, com- so you mentioned those forklifts. Um, I use a, a a bank, obviously, and the PNC Bank in Nashville. It's a cashless, personless bank. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do cash, you put your card into a machine, and then a person comes into a screen. And when you said like people farms, that's exactly what I think of. I think okay, there's just this centralized farm of people who still do manual labor, but they do it at a at a a way that's so scalable that you don't actually need to have quote employees all over the country. So using that example, it's clear that we're going to start seeing things that are traditionally done by humans, labor, just more and more commoditized, broken down. We won't need them. And so then how do people start making livings? And I don't see any reason why um, maybe gestures, right? Maybe micro content, like I'll write a sentence for somebody's blog post, or maybe you can pay me uh, in a token for a a quote that I wrote in, in your book. You know, these are just examples off the top of my head, but uh, I think it's really fascinating to see how all of this will emerge in the markets and in our society. Yeah. I've, I've, I have like a new, I was talking earlier about having multiple revenue streams. Mm -hmm. So I have a new, a new revenue stream that I never even planned to have, but it just happened without my planning it or having any control over it Uh, with people quoting me in articles and then them selling those articles as NFTs and me automatically getting a piece of the sale uh, from the article. So that's actually happening. 
<laughs> yes. So there's a platform. There's a platform called Mirror. Mirror XYZ. Dot XYZ. Sure. Sure. And it's kind of like a you know a substack, a newsletter kind of platform, blogging platform, but kind of crypto, crypto powered, Ethereum based. And uh, first of all, to even write there, you need to kind of buy a token and then have other people that have that token vote whether you should be allowed to write or not. So it's kind of like a, partly owned by its community and kind of governed by its community. Uh, funnily enough, I haven't been voted yet to be given the right to uh, to actually publish anything there. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, I, I, I haven't re- I haven't really tried to you know I haven't really tried too hard to get voted, but it's interesting. But other people have quoted me in their articles. Uh, actually, a couple of different people, and those articles they structure them in a way. That first, they sell them, so they said, "Okay, we wrote this article. We're selling it as an NFT. If someone wants to kind of buy it or just to kind of." compensate us for writing something that is that is important. And these are the ideas that we kind of drew on from these like five or 15 different people. Uh, this person really inspired us. So we're going to give them 15% of the proceeds. Drawer is like, okay, so we'll give him 3%. Uh, and then there's some other guy who like designed the cover image. So we'll give him 1%. And what's nice about that is that automatically when someone pays for that article, I get money automatically. And then I think if every time it gets resold, I can get a piece out of that as well. So it's a bit like the royalty system for music, which is not new, but the difference is the level, the much lower level of transaction costs, you know, for music to enforce that system, it only made sense to do it, you know, when you're Taylor Swift and you have a team of lawyers and accountants that kind of keep track of everything that's being played in the radio. The beauty of kind of blockchain powered things is that it's all automated by smart contracts, you know, consume the content online, the act of consumption itself is a transaction. It kind of triggers something in a contract that then knows who to pay automatically. And no one along this, there's no human involved. You know, no one says, oh, it's, he mentioned drawer, so drawer should get money and I'll call his bank and see when he wants to get paid. And then in a year, I'll send him like, for my book, I get a royalty statement a year after the sale has been done. And then basically I get, when when a book of mine gets sold, I get the money like a year and a half later. Uh, so, you know, so the difference to me living in those two worlds is like amazing. I'm like, oh, I just got money in my account just because someone mentioned me in a blog post and I, I didn't even know about it. Uh, compared to like, oh, I wrote this whole book. I have a team that is supposed to look after my interests. And the result of that is that I get paid a year and a half late and that I have no visibility into what actually happened, what actually was sold for how much. So, uh, yeah, so there's crazy stuff going on. And in terms of what else people could do, one interesting scenario that I described in in, in a blog post recently as well. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about religion. As an example, all institutions are some sort of like behavioral systems. You know, they're trying to incentivize people to either to scare them or to like encourage them to do certain things uh, that ultimately will result in, in a greater good. Uh, and I was contemplating a scenario where with these type of smart contracts, let's say I have a neighbor and he makes a lot of noise so I can't sleep at night, but we can have a system where every time I have a good night's sleep based on my fitness tracker, automatically my neighbor gets like a $5 bonus just because he was quiet at night. And, you know, I don't have to ask him. He doesn't need to know me. There's just some sort of incentive system and, you know, and, and he's going to shovel whatever in front of his uh house. And if he does it in front of my house, he's going to get paid automatically without me even asking him and without kind of asking for permission from anyone. And the beauty of 
of this is like, you know, a lot of these things you can say, okay, it's easy to, you know, to use digital content with smart contracts because obviously everyone knows when a file is being downloaded or when a website is being seen, but nobody knows when my neighbor behaves or when he did me a favor in the real world. Uh, but what's interesting is that there's a lot of other technologies, you know, like machine vision and machine learning of all sorts of things that, that can now turn more and more of the physical information we have about the world into structured data. So, you know, they can kind of say, okay, this person was here at this and that hour and he was using a broom to do something. And then there were five leaves on the floor before he got there. And now there are zero leaves. So it means he completed a certain task and now automatically I can make sure that he gets paid for it. So there's also like crazy scenarios that, that I think they, they sound crazy, but they're so close. They're already technologically feasible and they enable all sorts of new business models uh, so I think people can stay busy uh, for a while. The, the bigger question is like, you know, whether they will feel that they're, you know, that their life is meaningful yeah. uh, or, or whether they'll be entertained enough not to care about these things, which is probably the more likely outcome. <laughs> uh, so I want to know about your feel about institutions because there's almost a battle at least on Twitter and who, who knows how real life Twitter is. Sometimes it feels like the most accurate predictor of everything. That's the only life there is. No, yeah. Twitter. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, like what else is there? Uh, and then other times Twitter feels like a delusion land. That's where presidents are being appointed. That's where uh, <laughs> companies are being launched, you know, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. All right. But so on Twitter, there's a, um, a feel, theological battle between decentralization, hyper-individualist, and institutions. And I really agree with you, at least I, I think, you never actually made a statement, but an institution isn't necessarily just some unnecessary thing. It's almost like a, it's a thing that combines ideas into like an aim, you know, with an institution, a group of people can get together and, and and be working towards the same outcome, as you said, towards the greater good. And with blockchain, all of that is not only disappears, the, the thought process is almost like anti-institution, you know? Mm -hmm. I can't see a world without institutions. Like, I don't think that world seems like a lot of fun at all. Um, and it's just human nature that that kind of world would almost ironically tribalize and then institutions would form anyway. So I guess my question is like, how do you think institutions and blockchain fit together? Yeah. So first, you know, so I, I'm my formal training, you know, my master's degree is in economic history and in economic history and economics in general, institutions wow. is a very, very big deal. It's something yeah. that has, you know, people study it and try to define it. And there's multiple Nobel prize winners that kind of pioneers the thinking around institutions and in economics, institutions is much more broadly defined than like, you know, government or like uh, this or that organization. An institution is just the fact that, you know, I'm going to walk near you and not punch you in the face uh, because I'm trying to be nice. Like little things and little habits and little kind of arrangements between people that are very kind of implicit are also institutions. Sure. And, you know, the fact that people uh, bow to each other in one place and shake their hands the in another place, together. they're all part of institutions. So, uh, and there is simply no way to avoid these type of arrangements, whether they're formal or informal, uh, that differs and the role of government differs, but there's always gonna be some sort of structure. There's always gonna be some sort of hierarchy. 
it can be more dynamic, less dynamic, easier to change, harder to change. But the idea that, again, that it's going to be like, oh, everyone is just going to do whatever they want and it's all going to be fun. <laughs> there's just no example of that ever happening. Uh, and, yeah. and again, there's always, it's always a result of, of incentives and there's a, a new order that always emerges. Uh, definitely, I think Bitcoin and blockchain more broadly will bring about a certain... Uh, a reemergence of all sorts of new ways of doing things and kind of new power relations and new incentives for people, but it will not bring the end of this thing existing altogether. It will not mean that, okay, now everything is just about people trading with each other uh, directly and no one else benefits and no one else depends uh, and no one depends on anyone. Uh, and I also, I, I find it a little, how do you call it? Cold or cruel or like, mm -hmm. Uh, like, why should the goal be not to depend on anyone? Like, you know, it's, it's yeah. obviously it's good to be to be successful and prosperous and and to have everything you need. But like, why why is the goal even to like, why why do we have to be so hostile to each other as like an as an as an ideal? You know, uh, and that's coming again from a person who's very skeptical of government and you know very kind of. Uh, you mentioned the lizard brain. Mine is definitely hyperactive because I have like a post traumatic history that goes back several <laughs> generations. Uh, it's just and, angry you know, millennials on Twitter that are mad that yeah because they got no I mean I think a lot of that but that's a sad thing that a lot of the discussion about you know Bitcoin and blockchain is really way too ideological yeah kind of utopian I, I just tweeted like about it earlier today so there was just now two essays one by by Balaji Srinivasan and uh, one by a fellow called Michael Green who's kind of like a more traditional investor but also that worked for Peter Thiel and others uh, and one is kind of pro bitcoin and the other is anti bitcoin and both their arguments kind of boil down to oh it's terrible because it finances terrorism and the other one is like oh, no this is the only hope for civilization like you know it's kind of like there's so much in between that is much more interesting than that and uh my interest in the world of crypto in general is first the metaphors that it gives me to think about stuff, you know, so like that neighbor that we mentioned that is going to be nice to me because he's incentivized. And I don't care if it ends up happening on the blockchain or with another technology. It's just the fact that the technology enables it now and it's cheap enough to kind of even contemplate these things. Uh, and, and the second is kind of like, yeah, maybe it's the same as the first one. Just like, you know, that it opens up all the, it's, it's more interesting than anything else. Like I, like to me, what's interesting about it is that it's interesting, you know, that it, I can think about it for 10 years and I still can't kind of wrap my my hands or my head around it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think people are so eager sometimes to jump to a conclusion, to like be attached to something, to be yeah. like, oh, either this or, or death. And, you know, and then I'm going to be like, not depend on anyone ever. And, you know, that's the best thing that can ever happen. Or like, you know, we're all like uh, communists now and uh, <laughs> yeah. slaves, uh, which is a big concern. I have more sympathy for like the Bitcoin side of the argument. But I think that if you want to convert people and allow them to see the benefits of these new technologies, or even to understand a lot of the issues with the current system that we have, uh, there's probably more productive ways of doing it. And also kind of more fun and, and interesting ways. But I don't even remember what your question was because now we kind of got into such a... Well, it's, it's a perfect segue because we were... You're talking about Balaji and Michael Green and these yeah. two sides buried in the sand. And I find that to be the case, especially the last two days. My newsletter was actually about this with 
Elon Musk tweeting about the energy consumption of Bitcoin. And right away, you were either stop talking about this. This is all a lie. What are we going to do? Stop having Christmas because Christmas lights take as much power of another country. And then the other side is just this is irresponsible. Bitcoin is terrible. And I didn't see not one. And I was actually looking for it because I was, again, talking to my wife about this. Like, where is it that you can't say just because this other thing is bad, that means that what we're doing should be allowed because it's not as bad as the other Mm -hmm. thing. Like that's a terrible rationalization. But on the other side, you also have to admit, okay, what we're doing is a work in progress and we're trying to figure out a better technology that can serve the world better. And somehow we got to figure out how to just work through that shit so that we can come to like a good a better world, like a good solution where everybody isn't just so opinionated. Yeah. A lot of it is really childish. Like, you know, so Elon Musk tweeted what he tweeted. And then five minutes later, I'm I'm seeing like very serious kind of financial analysts kind of like, ha ha ha. Like, you know, yeah, Bitcoin went down like 5%. It's the end. Like, you know, this thing like went up like 12 X in like the last 15 months. And, and they're like really celebrating, like it's the game over now. Okay. Like it went down <laughs> from like 53 to like 51 or like, to be like yeah, we won. Like, yeah. Or like, you know, we, it's like, you know, what's up with you guys? Like, it, it's just so, it doesn't seem like very intelligent. And, uh, and yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the multiple things can be true at the same time. You know, I yes. always say like in 1999, the internet was a bubble it was also the the biggest thing ever, and uh, and even today, a lot of people are still trying to pretend that it doesn't affect them whatsoever, and that they can just keep doing. And again, twenty years later, so so a lot of things don't have to become obvious to everyone at the same time. Uh, they don't affect everyone in the same way. Some people will be able to, you know, live and retire and keep a stable job without any of these things affecting them, maybe because they're young or maybe because they're very lucky or in a handful of profession that somehow will, will be affected less. Uh, so to me, it all comes back again to curiosity, uh, which is how maybe I kind of align my, my anxiety with my optimism <laughs> or attempted optimism to just like say, you know, more than anything, this is interesting. I'm driven to know what's going on because that helps me feel safe. Uh, but also somehow I enjoy it because it is interesting and, you know, there's all these things happening and to just kind of dismiss them. uh, I just don't think that's the the kind of the intelligent thing to do. And, and even if you disagree with them, you should want to understand them. Like, you know, my, like I own Bitcoin, but I'm still kind of like, I'm not fully convinced. I just think that in terms of like risk reward, I'm like, okay, it doesn't, doesn't cost me too much to own a little, if it ends up being, you know, taking over the world good, at least I'll have something to eat. And if it doesn't, so fine. It's just like buying another stock of some company that, that ended up not kind of uh, working out. Uh, especially when you see people passionate about this, well, they're not passionate or completely ignorant of the stuff that they should care about much more. Like most people, their money is managed in some pension fund or 401k. They have no idea what it does, what it's invested in, what kind of fees they pay. And, you know, and there's like, that's fine. Don't worry about it. But let's argue about Bitcoin all day on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of just, doesn't, you know, doesn't make sense. Yeah, we need to be less emotional and more rational. And uh, I have personally been working on that as, <laughs> me too. you know, <laughs> you know, like I am an emotional person uh, for sure. It, it's, it's hard in this uh, 
attention grab economy where everybody's trying to be the new movie star. And it's, it's a shame that the divisive content is always what gets people the most attention. And I, I wish, although I don't necessarily see a way where it could happen, that like rational conversations, maybe something like this can get the same amount of exposure that, you know, fucking, I don't know, somebody shooting off about how they were right about Bitcoin and how they can't wait to see it crumble would get. Um, and maybe that day will come. <laughs> I'm not really holding my breath. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it's fine. I mean, it's always been like that, you know, the, 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 we live in a world that is like more about entertainment than anything else. But in a way, it's it's always been like, you know, politics was always a game of, you know, who is more popular, who can make some people hate the other group. Uh, but at the same time, the big ideas end up changing the world and persisting. So the, the fact that something is not popular doesn't mean that it's not going to make an impact. Uh, it just means that most people will not be positioned properly to benefit from that impact or at least to avoid some of the, the damage that it causes. Yeah, agree totally. Um all right, so let's let's start wrapping this thing up. I want to end. I, I my plan was to kind of show the relationship between the internet and the hyper individualism that content and creating content creates, and almost how the internet is evolving into blockchain. I, I think of blockchain almost kind of like the 3.0 of the internet. You know, if it was computers. Or if it was just the internet, you know, like HTTP, and then it was Web 2.0, just the fact that we could all communicate on like a timeline. I really see blockchain as like this 3.0. It's like this digital renaissance, sort of speak, where we're all going to start to see the world uh, in a different way. So ultimately, aside from what we talked about with NFTs and commoditization and um, more of like a, a macro level, right? How does Bitcoin and Ether, I think it's important to keep that one in there. Like, how are we going to see that affecting real currencies? And do you think that's even going to happen? What, what do you think the macro play is on this? So two things. One, I agree with you that I think the blockchain kind of offers a sort of internet 3.0. Yeah. Uh, most of that is an Ethereum story rather than a Bitcoin story. And even beyond Ethereum, all sorts of other currencies that are trying to kind of serve as infrastructure, you know, whether it is like Cardano or Polkadot or, or others. Uh, and in terms of the macro impact, I think we're already seeing some of that. I mean, the fact that Bitcoin exists is already kind of like changing the relationship of the world to the US dollar and the relationship between China and the US. It's already part of the game. I'm not going to say that it's the most important part of it. Uh, but, you know, Peter Thiel said a few months ago that, you know, he sees Bitcoin, even though he's kind of a Bitcoin somewhat maximalist, mm -hmm. uh, he also sees it as possibly a tool in the hands of China to kind of try to kind of dethrone the US dollar and all the benefits that come with, with having the global yeah. reserve currency and the ability to print it. Uh, but then when Peter Thiel says something like that, so the first reaction from the media is like, oh, you know, okay, Peter Thiel said that Bitcoin is dangerous. But then there's the 3D chess kind of analysis that comes in after that. And it says, no, Peter Thiel said that in order to scare the American government so that they'll support Bitcoin because otherwise they'll think that only the Chinese will use it. So actually he's kind of like, <laughs> you know, three steps ahead. And maybe it's true, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. 
but the fact that again that it's a factor in that game already already shows you that it's making a difference and it's presenting an alternative I think we're already seeing governments elsewhere but now even in the US starting to talk about having their own digital currencies which of course yeah. have nothing to do with sorry with uh, with Bitcoin or uh, you know with with actual <laughs> digital currencies that are decentralized uh, but at the same time they might be become much more adopted than a lot of the things that we're talking about today and their impact might be the opposite that now you suddenly have the centralized government that controls every little interaction that can incentivize every little behavior uh, that can forces your neighbor to be nice to you and to let yeah. you sleep at night and we're seeing a, a very early and primitive version of that in China already now with like that kind of social credit score that like okay if you're not nice or if you didn't uh, help some old lady cross the road then suddenly you you know your borrowing uh, costs are going up higher or you're not allowed to go into a shopping mall at certain times of the day uh, or not allowed to leave your building maybe uh, so th- there's that risk as well uh, so more than anything I can't say where it will end but uh, but it's it's clear that it's a factor and it's both scaring government and also inspires them to like oh there's all sorts of other stuff that we can do to uh, to try to kind of steer people's behavior uh, beyond what we've already been doing and uh, Which is why, again, on that front also, I wouldn't, like the assumption that technology is just like a liberating force and that, you know, yeah. if we'll just destroy something, then something better will come out of it just by default. Uh, we might be unpleasantly surprised that, one, the things that we're trying to destroy are much harder to destroy. Yeah. Uh, especially the, the worst parts of them. So, you know, you might destroy a lot of parts of capitalism and of democracy, but the kind of the hard parts <laughs> that are very violent and strong and, and, and not very transparent are the ones that are going to die last. Uh, and you might end up making them stronger by destroying all the other things around them. Uh, a bit like what the internet has done with the media, you know, so it's kind of like destroyed a lot of the mainstream media or pushed it to behave in certain ways. Uh, that and in many ways have made it worse and have made the government itself less accountable and worse. And not saying that, they, that the media didn't have it coming or didn't deserve it, but again, the fact that we ruined a lot of what was already there didn't necessarily mean that now we're all better informed or uh, you know, that, that we keep uh, those in power in check better than we did uh, 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, last question. point I'll make here because I was having a thought experiment just like you do the other day where the mindset is that blockchain and decentralization creates more freedom. But then I was thinking there's just as much possibility that with blockchain, since everything is on a ledger, if there's a strong enough government, you could use that in the opposite effect to basically force people to do exactly what you want to do because you can keep track of Of like all of their actions and transactions a lot more so uh yeah I, I was having a little thought experiment in my head the other day about that same thing it's so interesting that you bring that up all right man George thank you so much for your time it was a pleasure speaking to you I I love your blog I love your newsletter I will put all of that on the show notes of this podcast you're also on Twitter I think it's just your name right it is yes all right fantastic uh, that will be on the show notes it was great talking to you I, I look forward uh, to your article every week and And, um, and I hope that we can do this again sometime. Thank you, Tim. I hope so too. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, man. Talk soon.